Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's get right to it for all of you in Global Wall Street. Truly, one of the most interesting controversial securities analysis analysts rather on banking and finance, Michael Mayo of CLSA. Are you having fun? I mean, you go into this season with all the cost cutting and the angst about banking. Is it fun out there? Uh, it's it's a battle for the large banks without top line revenue growth the only way to make the bottom line is to control expenses better and that means right. headcount reductions restructuring and dealing with this lower for longer interest rate environment what so, is jamie diamond's marching orders to his 20 top leaders in this september well J- jamie diamond at jp morgan uh, has been an outperformer so their marching orders is to continue to gain market share while controlling expenses we call them the lebron james of banking because they're good at both offense and defense, but we think the entire banking industry is going in the direction of J.P. Morgan in terms of its resiliency. We think the U.S. banks have the most resilient balance sheets in decades. I just picked on Bank of America because it's what came up on the Bloomberg. They have 210,000 employees. Forget about the minutia of buy, hold, sell and all that. Where will that employee count be five years or 10 years from now? Lower, and that's it. Oh, come on. Thank you, folks, for the brilliance from Michael Mayo. Lower is the answer. How much lower? No, I mean, we're looking at 5 to 10% lower. You have a swap of from people to machines, and that's been taking place, and it's accelerating. And you can talk about, you know, fintech, you know, financial innovators. The latest but, Vogue, yeah. Yeah, but the U.S. banks are some of the greatest <clears throat> fintech innovators out there. And so you're reducing the number of people in branches. You're reducing the branches. You're having more mobile banking and Internet banking. Right. <clears throat> and uh, you're automating a lot of processes. And this comes out of necessity. Necessity is the mother of invention. It's certainly the case at the banks. State the rationalization. And this is not sexy. This is boring banking. State the rationalization that we need branch banks. It seems to me a rationalization towards obviously fewer branches because nobody's in them. State the why they sustain that model. By all means, consumers do more banking through ATMs and mobile devices and the internet. On the other hand, when you open up accounts, you you go go into branches. When you're a small business banker, you go into branches. The older generation, which has a lot of money, they go into branches. And even millennials go into branches more than you might realize. There's a lot of good data from the likes of Wells Fargo and JP Morgan that highlight, you know what, we need to reduce branches but they're still very important. Okay, let's go over to investment banking right now. FIC is the uh, jargon, fixed income, currency, commodity, and all that. It's been beleaguered. Is that structural? Is that cyclical? Is it a one or two quarter one-off? Well, FIC has been sick, as you say. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we bring it to a high level for your show, Tom. The male comedy <laughs> continues. FIC has been sick. Okay, continue. Uh, some of this is structural and, and structural in a good way. Um, you've had right. bank regulation. You have the Volcker rule. You don't want banks holding as many bonds in their inventory so that banks don't blow up. And that's one reason banks are a lot less riskier, or, you know, a lot, lot more resilient than in the past. Uh, on the other hand, some of this is cyclical, and mm. you've seen a fallout and... This will improve probably when the Fed starts to raise interest rate, rates again. That will get a lot of investors off the sidelines. I want to let's start with someone iconic, and, and he and I have gone back and forth from times, particularly with the Economic Club of New York. Robert Wilmer, Wilmers of Buffalo, New York, M&T Bank. Are there any more young? Are there young Robert Wilmers out there? He's legendary. Yeah, I'm going to weave in a point that I want to make here, Tom. There's only five bank CEOs out of banks in the S&P 500 that have been in their jobs for 10 or more years. One is Jamie Dimon, and his stock's up threefold. Another is Zions, it's up eight times. 
Another is Capital One, the stock's up 13 times. And the last is Bob Wilmer's M&T Bank, the stock's up 72 times yeah. since he became CEO. So three times, eight times, 13 times, and 72 times. The fifth bank, whose CEO has been in the job for over 10 years, is Comerica. And over that time, <clears throat> the stock is down one-fifth. What's wrong with that picture? If you do the job well, there's an argument for keeping a CEO around, such as Bob Wilmer's M&T Bank. But if you don't get the job done over 14 years and your stock's down one-fifth, oh, and by the way, you get paid $91 million during that time, I say, where is the accountability? The financial crisis was partly caused due to lack of accountability, improper incentives. And here we have Comerica today, where the CEO continues to collect a high paycheck um, stocks underperform, <clears throat> right. yet we allow him to remain in place. So I view Comerica as a test case for the degree that the U.S. banking system truly has. Why do you buy Comerica? Is it deposits? I mean, they're in Dallas. they got 9,000 employees. Moynihan's got 200,000, et cetera. Who would be not, I don't want to know specifically who, but what kind of institution would buy a Comerica? Well, Comerica formed in you know, 1849. They are a true middle market lender. They're lending to small okay. businesses, middle market companies. They have relationship bankers that have been in place for decades. This is a good franchise. They've, they've done a good job with that. On the other hand, they're just not optimized. So whether it's the likes of a, a U.S. bank corp or a Japanese bank like Mitsubishi or a Fargo Canadian bank. bank. Now, the largest banks are no longer allowed to buy Wells, Even banks. Wells Fargo. Even Wells Fargo. So, so not Wells yeah. Fargo, not Bank America, not J.P. Morgan. They've reached <clears> the U.S. deposit limit. But other banks could still be possible. And by the way, if a bank does buy them, then maybe they should sell off a region. If that doesn't happen, we think the CEO uh, should go by next year's right. annual meeting. And we, by the way, we think shareholders, <laughs> I think there's a chance that shareholders will vote out the CEO of Comerica, you know, at next year's annual right. meeting. Tell me about asset management. Of course, in Europe and Switzerland, it's a big deal. You buy asset management, you do it, and everybody wants to get into the game. All my radar's up when I hear that because only so many people can play and win as a vanguard is winning right now. Look, the goal for the banks is to have you know, more stable earnings. And asset management is seen as a way uh, okay. to get that stability. But it's not the only way, Tom. You're absolutely right. If everybody goes in the same place at the same time, what does that do to margins? What does that do to competition? Right. The goal, though, is more stable earnings. And asset management is one way, but there's a lot of other ways. So what I would say Such is, as? Well, such as, like, not making, you know, stupid loans during the financial crisis. Right. Such as concentrating on your area of relative strength. So for a UBS, certainly asset management makes more sense. Sure. But for other banks that don't have a, uh, a historical strength of asset management, it doesn't right. make as much no, sense. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch gears here, folks, to PNC Financial of Pittsburgh. And I do that because Pittsburgh's lost like 47 games in a row. I was watching <laughs> Pittsburgh Pirates last night, that gorgeous stadium. And you go across that gorgeous yellow bridge, and there's the land of PNC. What's the vision of a PNC besides that gorgeous view they've got over to Pirates Park? Well, the top of PNC is Bill Demchek, the CEO, who's actually a, a triathlete. Uh, so he has strength at the top of the, the house there physically, but I think his vision is to use technology to become better at customer service while at the same time reducing costs. So they're helping to lead the way in terms of the swap for, for manual Is that labor. James Diamond 101 that he's doing? This is, you know, like, it's, it's a new way. I mean, you're reducing many branches for more technology, but this is the way of the banking industry. I mean, banks are, you know, fintech innovators, and they have to do yeah. that. This has been great. Michael Mayo, thank you so much. We'll see LSA. Well, one of the world's most famous investors, uh, although that is not what he does for a living. He's a, he's a Jets fan. Uh, Muhammad Ali is with us today. Yesterday, he wrote a piece for Business Insider suggesting a good year ahead could be in store for the long-suffering New York Jets. I thought as an investor you learned that past performance was no guarantee and that uh, you know you have to pay attention to, to facts and history to, uh, to understand where you're going to invest your heart. So here's the irony. If past performance were no guarantee, then I would be even more optimistic about the Jets <laughs> because our past performance is we blow it. Every chance we get, 
we blow it. No matter how big a lead we have, we blow it. So the hope is that we will overcome this maddening tendency to make stupid mistakes. Because if we can do that, there's enough quality on that team to take us to the playoffs. You have to, anytime you talk about the Jets going to the playoffs, you have to stand, uh, talk about the elephant in the room, and that is the team to the north. Uh, the New England Patriots have a lock on that division. So how do you get past that? You don't even get to play them when Tom Brady is on suspension. I know, and, and the schedule is pretty tough. Six of the first nine games on the road. Um, I don't think you realistically can expect to get first place. But what you can hope for is a wild card. And we've shown in the past that if we get into the playoffs, we can make it at least to the championship game. All right, I got uh, Let me put it this way. Odds. Who has better odds? Uh, the Jets getting into the playoffs or the Fed raising rates in 2016? The Fed raising rates in 2016. <laughs> you, th- you actually think that's going to happen because they're going to avoid stupid mistakes, as you put it, for the Jets? Yeah, I think it happens for two fundamental reasons. One is the economy is doing okay and the headwinds from outside are less severe. And secondly, they're getting more concerned about future financial instability. I think put these two things together and we will likely get a hike in 2016. Well, you, you look at jobs, the, the two ISM reports, car sales, they've all rolled old, over in August. How do you build a case? So the, sta- the initial conditions are very important. Look where we're starting from. And then also look at how strong the labor market has been. So you've got to address that. Secondly, I think they are now paying a lot more attention to Bernanke's famous equation. It's about, quote, benefits, costs, and risks. And when you come to a point where the benefits of ultra-low interest rates are going down and the costs and risks are going up, you take a second look and you take a more holistic assessment. When I look at the gain theory of our central banks now, Dr. O'Leary, you're truly one of the world's experts in synthesizing all the British heritage of game theory back to Frank uh, Ramsey, who tragically died young in the early, I believe it was the early 30s. What is the game theory of our collective central banks? It's not a prisoner's dilemma. It's not a T decision in these other pet phrases you and Avinash Dixit use at Princeton. I can't figure out the game theory of their new orthodoxy. What is it? So you can't figure it out because they are being impacted in a significant way by the inaction of other policymakers. And that is why they don't solve easily. So they are playing a cooperative game in the context where others are playing an uncooperative game. And when you have that mix, it is doesn't appear very coherent to you, and you cannot summarize it easily. And I think that speaks loudly to where we are today. And then it speaks to two non-mathematical phrases, courage and will. Correct. Where's the courage and where's the will to move from a cooperative state to make the non-cooperative institutions join the party? So the, the, the will is not there yet because it's political will. The recognition is there. I was very struck. Um, I didn't get to see the G20 communicate the moment it came out. Lucky you. And I was very surprised when I actually read it. It is full of content. There's a very good assessment of what ails the global economy, and there's a very good assessment of what's needed. The problem is political. We don't have national political will to implement. The... uh The investor, Bill Blaine from Mint Partners, a friend of this program, uh, wrote a note the other day telling us that he had been approached by one of his customers who said, what if the world's central banks don't have a plan? What if they're just making it up as they go along? That does seem to kind of be the case here in terms of what they do next. Uh, So what if? So so they have made it up as they go along. No No one, I think expected them to stay unconventional for so long. I think no one expected negative policy rates. Um, So they have made it up, and they've had to make it up because they thought they were playing a short-term game. They were just building a small bridge until the other policymakers step up to the plate, and they've ended up playing a long-term game. So they've had to make it up, make it up, make it up, and that's the reality. Having said that, where the concern is, is how do you exit? How do you normalize if others aren't cooperating? And that's why I feel strongly that 
A, central banks no longer control their own destiny, and how we judge them is going to be a function of what others do or do not do. And secondly, we have an obligation to turn the spotlight to other policymaking entities that are staying on the sideline. We, we over-obsess with central banks. We over-obsess as to whether they're going to hike at the next meeting or not. We lose sight of the bigger issue. And the bigger issue is that we have over-reliance on one set of policymakers and the others are not stepping up to their responsibility. Have they lost control of policy then, central banks? I think it depends where you are. If you're in Japan, the Bank of Japan has not only become ineffective, but in my view, it is counterproductive. The Fed is at the other end where it's still effective, but it's worried about the collateral damage, especially longer term. And in the middle, you have the ECB and the Bank of England. Does reflation work? Have you seen any evidence? And, you know, this goes back to almost uh, the, the new Cambridge policy group and just thinking from years and years ago. Is there any evidence that someone can reflate, that you can overtly reflate an economy? What we know is monetary policy alone won't do it. And it's not surprising because mm -hmm. you're pressing the accelerator on monetary policy and then you're pressing the brakes on fiscal policy, lack of structural reform, and debt burdens. And then you're surprised that the car doesn't move. Well, of course, because you're simultaneously pressing the accelerator and then a much bigger brake. So we know monetary policy alone cannot do it, but I do believe that a comprehensive policy response can do it. People will respond to incentives Yes, uh, and not just save the money because uh, they expect to have to pay it back someday. Yeah, and, and also people aren't stupid. So in Japan, when people see how extraordinary the situation is, including these negative rates, what do they do? They self-insure. Now, we know from economics that the more a society self-insures, the less productive it is. Why? Because self-insurance is a very inefficient way of running a society. And what you're seeing in Japan is more and more people, households and companies, are self-insuring. Where is your op I mean, and this goes back to your management of Harvard's endowment a few years ago. Where is your optimism on equity investment? Now, we talked about this with Ambassador Haas earlier, all these discrete issues that are out there all these gloom issues. Can Mohammed Alarian stay invested in corporate, global corporate multinationals? Oh, yeah. There's some very exciting stories. You have companies with more cash today than they've had in their lifetime. That gives them enormous optionality, enormous potential. Second, you have amazing innovations that are enabling people to do more. So if, if you were to step back and say, is this a good time for the global economy? Yes, it is. The problem is that this is not being unleashed sufficiently because the overall environment is not what it could be. If you want to be optimistic, just look at what's happening in various <clears throat> sectors, and what you get is Mike. the potential for breakouts. Can we have a shout-out for James Wales of Wikipedia? <laughs> Mike, I'm ignorant, unlike you. I didn't know what butt fumble was. Ah, and there's a whole no. large whole page, <laughs> a whole article. Patriots 49, yeah. Alarians 19. Well, uh, Muhammad's team and my team managed to get rid of the butt fumble guy, so we're we're both happy about that. But very quickly before we let you go, J uh, the Mets playoffs this year. It's going to be hard, but they're still, they're still in the running. I mean, they, they just need to keep doing what they've been doing for the last 10 days. You're going to get a call from Fred Wilpon. Yeah. He's going to say, Dr. Alarian, pony up. we got to keep Thor. You're right. <laughs> Check. Mohamed Alarian with us, of course, writing for Bloomberg View. Stephen Ratner with us right now. Who is the greatest thing since sliced bread? He is bread, the greatest thing since sliced bread. He's with Willett Advisors. Maybe sliced bread wasn't so great. Somebody said that to me. I said, well, wheat or does, all white? <laughs> does your brown economics degree, does it help you in this milieu today? Or do investment animals like you just divorce yourselves from the distortions of our macroeconomics? No, we spend, uh, we spend an immense amount of time thinking about the macro. In fact, we had a two-hour offsite yesterday to do this, uh, do this in part anyway. Think about the macro Excuse forces. Excuse me. No, we have to stop the show. I'd love to know where Steve Ratner has an offsite. Is this in the old King Cole bar? We, we have it in a secure, the... undisclosed location. <laughs> if I told you, I would have to kill you. <laughs> Continue. 
But in any event, we spend an enormous amount of time. In fact, I was just reading uh, a presentation that we're going to discuss this morning on, on Japan and Abenomics. We spend an enormous amount of time thinking about the macroeconomic uh, picture because that ultimately is going to drive corporate profits. And ultimately, if you believe in efficient markets, drive stock prices. Well, let's go there. Um 21st of September, we get the Fed decision, but we also get the Bank of Japan meeting and deciding. And uh, Kuroda-san has called for a complete reassessment of Japanese monetary policy uh, at that meeting. What do you think they decide? Are central bankers likely to say, well, no, we blew it. <laughs> what we decided to do didn't work, and we got to do something different. Well, I, I think it's, it's relatively self-evident that what they decided to do worked only a little bit that it worked sort of for a while, and then it kind of stopped working, and then the end started going the wrong way. And as you know, that's for a variety of reasons. One, because the Bank of Japan has been disappointing the markets the last couple of meetings in terms of what it was going to do. And secondly, there's a variety of carry trades and other complicated derivatives trades going on between dollar assets and uh, JGB assets that have probably distorted the exchange rate somewhat. But look, Japan, unless Japan does essentially what Abe said when he came into office, all three arrows, including structural reform. I, I at least, and I'm not a Japan expert, see no reason right. why Japan isn't going to just toddle along, uh, bounce on the bottom the way they've been okay. doing it. I, I'm going to carry forward a thought that we had an hour ago or so, maybe it was 45 minutes ago, Steve Ratner, where I talked about, okay, all this is great. It was with Mohammed Alarian, and I said, none of it matters if you don't have courage and will. You live that as Karzar, people that supported you, including the president, and many, many, many critics all had to agree that at least there was courage, at least there was will as you affected Karzardom. Do you see courage and will right now among these bankers? The, the courage and will in Karzardom uh, uh, resulted really from, emanated from two principal factors. One, we had a terrible, terrible crisis, not just sort of a stagnant economy like in Japan, but a terrible, terrible crisis. And secondly, for a variety of reasons that are not worth getting into in, in this show, the president had an unusual amount of authority to simply implement the car restructuring. We did not have to go through the normal political process with mm -hmm. Congress. And what you see happening in governments in the developed world all over, all over the world are uh, political systems that simply cannot implement the kinds of structural reforms that all these countries, including ours for that matter, need in order to get back to some reasonable level of growth. You look at Italy, where Renzi has tried to do some, a lot, tried to do a lot of things, gotten a little bit done, but is sort of dancing on a precipice at the moment. So it's a, it, the political system does not yet accept what needs to be done, and that's a broad statement I think you could apply to pretty much any country. Well, when you go to your offsite, what do you conclude? Uh, Europe's policy has been to muddle along. You just talked about Japan muddling along. Can we keep muddling along and because the central banks keep pumping in liquidity, the things you invest in are going to keep going up? Or is there a price to be paid sometime soon, A car, an automobile industry-like uh, crisis? Well, look, this, is a, this is a complicated question. First of all, you've had a huge amount of multiple expansion in the stock market that it was driven initially by rising and record corporate profits and corporate profit margins. That bloom appears to be coming off the rose. The second big driver of stock prices has been interest rates. If you believe that interest rates are going to stay lower for longer, as the market believes, contrary to what the Fed seems to believe, then that should provide, could provide an underpinning to the 17P multiple that the S&P is at today, to the 25P multiples that a lot of the consumers, the high-dividend consumer staples companies are getting. And so you could see the stock market continue to edge up a bit but if, if multiples start to revert mm -hmm. to some kind of normal level, that would be a real headwind for the stock market. Steve Ratner, thank you so much. Very quickly, do you, do you like Apple? We usually don't talk about individual stocks. I, I, you know, I can talk about them, but I don't know anything about them, so I don't know why you oh, okay. listen to me. Would you buy a new iPhone? <laughs> Are you interested I, I don't think at I all? I, give my I don't think I want to give up my 3.5-millimeter jack at the moment, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, see. we'll see what it looks like when they release it. Steve Ratner. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more 
at findyourindependentadvisor.com. I'm going to say it right away up front. We will not send you his research report. We religiously protect the copyright of all of our guests, and particularly when it's a report where Mike McKee just stops walking on our news floor with his nose pointed down saying, Tom, shut up. You have to read this. Michael? Yeah, and um, we get lots of uh, reports Good stuff. in, yes. and, and this one was one where I said, we got to get Steve Stanley in right away. He's the chief economist at Amherst Pierpont. It is a a very, very interesting, very challenging, uh, fascinating um, pushback at the orthodoxy that is in place at the Federal Reserve. Not whether they're going to raise rates in September or not, but the way the Fed looks at the economy. And Steve has a, a great new report called House of Cards. Uh, you take on the whole idea uh, that the Fed has uh, measured uh, the economy correctly and is using the right models and uh, has you know, decided that interest rates should be lower for longer because our star has come down. Uh, and you, you really make some good points. And chief among them that stood out to me was that uh, you think uh, the Fed is backfitting data to fit a theory rather than going where the data should be taking them. Well, I mean, I think the, the, the model at the, at the board has always been very, very central to their thinking. And, you know, when the, when the reality diverges from the model, sometimes it takes a very long time for economists to, to recognize that and to adjust their, uh, their model accordingly. How are they doing that and what are they doing wrong? Well, I think, you know, just to go through a little bit of the thinking in the paper, I mean, you know, I, I kind of broke apart the um, the thought process behind the, the Laubach-Williams model, which is the um, which is the paper that a lot of the folks at the Fed have been using to back up the idea that, that the neutral rate of interest, or as they call it, our star, has fallen quite a bit. And there are good reasons to think that it has, but I think um, – it, it basically, the way that the, that this particular model comes to that conclusion is by noting that um, you know we had this very easy monetary policy, or what we thought was a very easy monetary policy, in the earlier part of this cycle, and it didn't result in the in the rapid pickup in inflation that people thought might happen. And so the conclusion is, well, if that if that inflation pickup didn't occur, then it must mean that policy actually wasn't that accommodative, and which I actually think that part of it is right, but I think they get the wrong reason there. Uh, I would have said it was because a lot of the unconventional measures that were used just weren't very effective at stimulating growth, uh, but they came to the conclusion that since rates were at zero and policy wasn't getting much traction, it must have meant that this neutral rate had fallen very fast. And while I think it has fallen, and we've talked about on the show a number of times the decline in, in productivity, and obviously that has big implications for potential GDP and in turn, in my mind, for the neutral rate of interest, I, I just don't think that the idea that the, that the neutral rate of interest is zero or negative really resonates. Um, you know, it's just not very realistic, even if, even if a, one particular model might lead you to that conclusion. Is this a failure to distinguish between cyclical and structural changes in the economy? I think that's part of what's going on, and, and I think in particular, I think there's a bit of a blind spot in the orthodoxy around the structural idea because, um, you know, the, the, the predominant thought process, which really for 50 years has been one version or another of Keynesianism, um, really focuses on the demand side of, of the equation, which is really a cyclical story. Uh, if the economy is mm -hmm. not performing up to speed, then it must mean that we need more stimulus to, to get more demand because demand is insufficient. And I think a lot of the problems that we're, that we're facing in the economy today are more on the supply side of the economy or structural. I mean, certainly the low productivity growth is the one that's the most prominent. And these are things that monetary policy can't easily address. Stephen Stanley and, and William Duport, St. Louis Fed, has been done a lot of work on this as well. Here's just one math equation. Summation beta by the, the, by the expected phi over alpha c to the alpha plus psi over alpha c to the alpha minus nt. 
All that mathematical mumbo-jumbo begs to go back to simpler models. Are we walking through an orthodox shift now back to simplicity? I think that's the heart of the debate. Well, it'll be interesting to see if we get there. I mean, I think over the last several decades, we've we've been moving toward more complexity. Yes. I think there are times when the models break down. And the question is, are you going to try to fit your square model into a round hole when the when the data suggests that something different is going on by tweaking the model in various ways or are you going to start over again and it's obviously for an academic economist the notion of starting all over again is 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 a pretty painful one and 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 a daunting one so i think there's a natural tendency to try to you know modulate a couple of parameters here and there and 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 try to mash that model into yeah. the round hole when um, sometimes it just doesn't fit. Mike, just so that Dr. Stanley knows, we call that on surveillance tweaking the model. <laughs> That's the PhD phrase we use. Yeah. Uh, well, Jim Bullard uh, at the St. Louis Fed has sort of thrown his models out and said, uh, you know, we, we can't forecast well anymore. So for, for the time being, I'm going to assume that little changes in the economy. Yeah. And I, I you know, I, I'd be, I'd love to get him under truth serum or something like that and, and, and get his feel for how that's worked out. Because in, in my view, it, it really hasn't worked out well for him. I, I don't think that, that he meant for people to believe that he literally doesn't think that there's going to be any movement in growth on unemployment inflation in the Fed over the next two years. I think basically he was throwing his hands up and saying, We haven't done a very good job of forecasting, so I'm just going to throw my hands up and and not really try to make a multi-year forecast and just see what happens. But but unfortunately, I think his you know market participants tend to look at headlines, not at the underlying um, rationale. And I think what people saw is that he was the low dot, and so all of a sudden Jim Bullard is now. Uh, thought of as a dove, when in reality, I don't think that's really the case at all. Steve, to the Dewport paper from the St. Louis Fed, here's the key sentence in the conclusion. Is the FOMC choosing monetary policy with a roulette wheel question mark? How close to the theoretical roulette wheel are we? Well, I think a a roulette wheel presumes that there's a lot of chance involved and it's kind of just blind luck and they're closing their eyes and and pinning the tail on the donkey or something like that. I I think it's much different than that. I think it's more, if anything, it's more that they kind of are working backwards, that they know what they want to do and they have to figure out a way to to justify that. Mm -hmm. I think there's been a a real lack of nerve to to raise rates and then, you know, a lot of backstories to justify it. Michael McKee in our discussion with Stephen Stanley. Amherst Pierpont, this sentence really got my attention in his outstanding new piece. Quote, I think there is also a strong leftward lean and ideology at the Federal Reserve Board. Michael? Yeah. um, Can you explain that, Steve? Most people on Wall Street would say yes, if by that you mean that Janet Yellen is more intently focused on the employment part of the Fed's mandate than on inflation. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, you know, I, and I don't think, I mean, she would say, hey, I'm not political, I'm not partisan, whatever. And, and, and by leftward lean, I certainly don't mean to suggest that she's being partisan in her job, but I do think that ideologically she does lean to the left, meaning, as you say, a big part of that is that she's really focused on getting unemployment down and, and would kind of maybe take some risks on inflation to get there. Um, but I think also it, it, it comes back to this kind of Keynesian orthodoxy. I think, you know, again, when we think about fiscal policy, and this is really a, right now I think a global problem, not just a U.S. one. Um, you know, there's so much talk about how monetary policy is, is close to being tapped out, and that we need fiscal policy to take up the more of the of the weight. But I think what people mean by fiscal policy, again, is usually that kind of old-school Keynesian thing, just throw money at the problem. And, again, that's not really what would solve our problems. We need more structural um, reform. We need to we need to deal with the, the overbearing regulatory structure. Uh, we need to reform the corporate tax code. We need to do things that are going to help to promote growth in the long run, not so much to give the economy a short-term uh, sugar high. 
I, I had another question to follow that, but I, I was just thinking, you worked at the Fed. When you say leftward leaning, I mean, do, you, do you put Fed people into Republican or Democrat boxes, or is it different branches, different strains of economics that believe one, one way of doing things works and another way uh, may not? Well, it, it starts more with the latter. I mean, I, obviously, there's some inevitable overlap, right, between the, the economics and the, and the politics of it. But, you know, I would also just say it's, it's perfectly natural. We're at the end of the second term of a Democratic president. So um, President Obama has nominated pretty much everybody that's, um, that's on the board in, in Washington. So it's not a surprise that you would expect the Fed to have shifted at least somewhat in that direction. So, you know, I mean, again, I I don't think there's anything nefarious going on here, but I do think that um, that because of, yeah. because they tend to think in a certain way, I think maybe they're missing some of the some of the solutions that that might serve better than than what we're seeing now. Right. Within your house of cards, are we advantaged to a better clarity, transparency, and stability? If we re- revert to a New Zealand-type Taylor rule, well, I think what would help the markets a lot is if there was some sort of a consistent reaction function that we could understand. You know, I mean, it's been shifting explanations and you know shifting emphases for several years now. And again, I think in some ways it's just a matter of, okay, well, we come to the meeting, we thought we might want to raise rates, but we now nah, we've changed our mind. We don't want to do that now. What can we? You know what story can we come up with to uh, to justify staying where we are? And those stories have obviously differed to some degree over the last several years. And so I think market participants, in particular, are a bit at a loss right now to understand what the reaction function is. You know, if you give me the, some version of the Taylor Rule and say we're going to follow this as closely as we can, then at least I can have a better idea of how to predict. Right now, I think it's very difficult to predict yeah. what the Fed's going to do and why. I mean, Mike, to be clear here, we all agree that we haven't followed the Taylor rule. Is it Mike McKee, is that a correct statement? That is a correct statement. Yeah. And you note that the you know, rates would be very different. Uh, one other area where rates, uh, the level of rates would matter in, in that uh, regard is if we get a recession. And Jenny Ellen did talk about this in Jackson Hole, uh, noting a paper by uh, Fed researcher David Reichschneider, who suggests that the you know going into recessions, the Fed had generally over-tightened. So even though rates are low now, you could react because you wouldn't have to cut rates as much because much of the accommodation they were taking away in the past was over-tightening. Uh, I mean, it was over-loosening. So rather, uh, let me get that right. Uh, so that, uh, you know, there there is more space for a um, for a Fed reaction to a downturn, uh, but you you disagree with some of uh, Mr. Reifschneider's conclusions. Well, I, I think he he makes a great point, which is, and I think this is something certainly I've been talking about for for years now, is that people in the markets I think mistake the what the Fed calls the long run equilibrium rate. You know what's in the in the quarterly forecast. Uh, they mistake that for the peak in the cycle. And that's not what it's designed to be. It's designed to be the neutral rate or, or what should work out to something close to the average over the course of the cycle. So what Reef Snyder notes is that in the past, the Fed has typically moved about 200 basis points above neutral at the top of the cycle, which makes sense. You get to the top of the cycle, inflation right. is accelerating, you have to tighten. And so if you assume that, that the Fed is going to be somewhere in that neighborhood at the end of the at the end of the tightening cycle, then if neutral is three, the funds rate should be five, and in fact you do have a lot of room to lower rates. I think where that breaks down is that in the last couple cycles the Fed has not done that, and that's really the the root of a lot of the complaints that I've had about monetary policy for quite a while. I think that the Fed has been very asymmetric in their movements. They've been very aggressive on the easing side and very tentative on the uh, tightening side. And the result has been over the last several cycles, while inflation, price inflation, hasn't necessarily gotten out of hand, asset price inflation has. And we had, of course. That's a key question. That's a key point. Do you equate asset enrichment as being an equivalency to a rate move? 
Well, what I would look at it as, you know, when asset prices are inflated because of Fed policy, that tells me that Fed policy is too easy. And I think what the Fed has, and they're very, very, very slowly coming around to this idea, um, but so far anyway, the, the consensus view has been that they only need to look at consumer price inflation or even core consumer price inflation when deciding whether policy is too easy. And I think the result has been, you know, there's a little bit of a blind spot. They're actually hampered by their own success. They've been so successful at getting inflation down that inflation is very slow to move away from their target. And therefore, they're very slow to notice that policy's been easy and it creates imbalances in the uh, financial markets. And certainly the last cycle, we saw some pretty big imbalances that developed over the course of that uh, of that expansion, even as core consumer price inflation stayed reasonably moderate by historical standards. All right. What is, uh, when, you, when you take this all together, uh, you sum up your paper for us in terms of what it means for policy that the Fed is uh, doing what it is doing uh, and what it means for the overall economy? Well, I think, you know, one big thing I would say, just taking up where, where we just were, is in thinking about where policy is right now, I think the Fed feels very strongly that policy needs to be uh, very accommodative because of the fact that inflation is still running below 2%. And I would look at just the general financial environment, um, the level of asset prices, the, the narrow spreads in various risk markets and all the rest, as, a, as an indicator that the Fed has been easy for a while and that it's starting to create imbalances. If you want to call it bubbles, fine. If you, know, if you want to call it something less extreme, that's, that's fine, too. Um, we, have, we have an economy that's basically at full employment, and yet the funds rate is still you know, pretty close to zero. And that's incredibly different from historical experience. And I think the Fed mm-hmm. risks creating a really big problem. Um, and mm-hmm. they want to be both uh, patient and gradual. And the mantra that I've been using of late is that they may be able to be patient or they may be able to be gradual, but right. they're not going to be able to be both. Stephen Stanley, thank you so much. Congratulations on House of Cards, folks. That's available at Amherst Pierpont. This is very special right now, an annual visit uh, with Gary Bettman of the National Hockey League. Mr. Bettman used to bounce a basketball, now he drops a puck. And it centers around the resurgence of a national and North American sport around November 26, 2013, where the NHL shocked people with a contract with Rogers Media in Canada, which changed the dialogue, the scope, and the scale. And then following on Michael McKee on that was the deal with NBC, uh, which has branded it from, I'm going to say, Gary, what, January 22nd? There's basically insanity till June? Well, actually, there's insanity throughout the season. We know you'd say that. Between NBC and NBC Sportsnet. Uh, We get great coverage. There's over 100 games between the two outlets in the regular Mm -hmm. season. And then the most important thing in the new NBC contract, which is now, I think, in its fifth season, is the fact that for the first time in our history, and and this may sound crazy, but for the first time in our history, every game of the Stanley Cup playoffs is on national TV. Uh, It would seem obvious that that should have always have been the case, but there's a long history to our television uh, forays long before I got to the league, and a lot of decisions were made in the 70s and 80s. But but in the final analysis, to have all our playoff games national is just terrific right, for right. our fans. Michael, bring in our special guest here with Mr. Bettman. <laughs> yes, uh, now skating for the Bloomberg surveillance team is Scarlett Fu, who is... Uh, I'm the power forward here. You're clearly. the power forward, and uh, you're you're the real... Uh, not You're not just a hockey mom, you're a hockey player. Hockey player, hockey fan, a hockey, all of the above. In fact, I was at the rink for 
three hours yesterday because is that practice all? has already begun. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. is that all? And I, that's part of what is interesting about right now for the NHL, uh, Mr. Commissioner, which is it's football season, it's back to school season, and yet the NHL is getting ready to host the World Cup of Hockey, uh, what's kind of an, an occasional event because it was last held in 2004 and before that in 1996. Why choose to hold this tournament now? Well, we think it was long overdue. When we do international events, we do them in partnership with the Players Association. And after 2004's World Cup, we kind of uh, had to take a little time off. There's some financial uh, to, issues to sort through. Well, no, it was also the collective bargaining, which, which unfortunately cost us a season, but gave us a system that has made the league healthier than it's ever been. Um, and then the union went through some turmoil, but under Don Fear, the former executive director of the Baseball Players Association, now the executive director of the Hockey Players Association, uh, the union's been stable and we've had a partner who we could work with. And we believe in the international roots of our game. Obviously, our home starts in Canada and the United States, but in terms of the four major North American sports leagues. We have the greatest diversity. 25% of our players come from outside of North America. This is a game with a long history and tradition of international play. And so when the opportunity presented itself that we could do it right, uh, we wanted to bring the World Cup back because our players, in addition to loving playing for the Stanley Cup, love international competition. And I was at the Hockey Hall of Fame in July, Mike, and of course I had to pick up a Henrik Lundqvist t-shirt <laughs> for my son. Yeah, <laughs> Just and a t-shirt? You didn't get him a sweater? <laughs> you know, the sweater was a little too big. He would have uh, drowned it. Well, um, let's talk about revenue a little bit. Uh, you have gotten uh, the, the big contract with NBC, and all the sports leagues keep building and building and building. Which raises, to my mind, a question of whether we're seeing a bubble in sports rights fees. And with all the talk about how millennials are moving away from watching television, uh, are you prepared for a world in which uh, you get diminishing returns for, uh, for your rights fees in which maybe you have to accept a little less, the players would have to accept a little less? Um, that's a world that people have been speculating about particularly from the media side, for at least the last 20 years, and it hasn't happened. Uh, millennials who, who are either cord cutters or they never buy the cord to begin with, the fact is it's about content, and there's no better content than live professional sports at the elite level. And how the sports gets distributed may vary over time, but the fact is whether it's uh, – well, actually, when it comes to live programming, there's nothing better than sports well, with the ultimate reality show. And in our case, uh, since we're kind of catching up in the world of, of major media, again, we talked initially in our discussion about the fact that our NBC agreement, thats this is the first time that all of our playoff games are on nationally. Uh, we're nowhere close to a bubble. We think we're still in a big growth mode. So you envision a world where rights fees are continue will continue to rise. Your, your, uh, your certainly, business plan, it, certainly it, for hockey. But again, we have a system uh, which aligns our revenues and our predominant expense, uh, player salaries, uh, and that was the system that we put into place roughly 13 years ago, and has given us extraordinary competitive balance. Okay, so if it's all about content and the content is always getting better, uh, Tom referenced the deal that you made with Rogers, a 12-year deal. What are the ramifications of falling ratings in Canada for the NHL if these ratings continue to slide over the next year or two? Uh, well, there are two aspects to that. Uh, neither Rogers nor we are concerned. Uh, in the first year of our deal with Rogers, uh, I believe five Canadian teams made the playoffs. Uh, and over time, Hockey Night in Canada and the national broadcast tended to rely principally on the Leafs and the Canadians, but really principally on the Leafs. Uh, the Leafs are in a rebuilding mode, and you add that. <laughs> That's our the, comedy act for the day. Uh, Could we quote you on that? <laughs> you probably will. But, and, and, and by the way, under Brendan Shanahan and Lou Lamorello and Coach Babcock, uh, the, they're, yes. do, they're doing yes. it the right way. 
couple that with the fact that no Canadian teams, and I think it's the first time since 1969, right. no Canadian teams mm-hmm. made the playoffs. When you factor that in, obviously the viewer patterns will vary when you go from five teams okay. in the playoffs well, to none. So uh, over the course of a long-term deal, which we have with Rogers, who's a great partner, uh, okay. they're more than comfortable with the relationship, and so are we. Michael McKee, before we get back to Commissioner Bettman and the NHL, Governor Carney has spoken. Yes, he is testifying before Parliament, and he says that the data do suggest the U.K. economy is a bit stronger than the BOE had forecast. However, he uh, pulls that back on itself by saying it's improved partly because of the BOE action, cutting rates and uh, stimulating the economy. And, Michael, as well, the Canadian dollar is a bit stronger. Canadian dollar uh, this morning at 78 cents is still nothing to write home about. And if you know any Canadians, they're not really happy about it. And you wonder, you, you mentioned the the issue with the Toronto Maple Leafs, but it's an issue for everybody up there is they're dealing in, in a currency that is significantly weaker than in the United States. How much influence does that have in the way you do business, both on the, say, the salary cap, uh, on expansion? There, There's talk that you didn't want to go to Quebec City because of the because of the Canadian dollar situation. Uh, what's it like being the only major sport that really has to function in two currencies? Well, first of all, uh, the heart and soul and roots of our game are in Canada. So whatever we have to do to make it work is is going to be vitally important. We want our Canadian clubs to not only be competitive, but to be economically stable and to do well. The system we have in place takes into account the possible fluctuations in the Canadian dollar. Uh, We compute uh, our league-wide revenues for purposes of the salary cap and revenue sharing and the like uh, by using the U.S. dollar because we knew in advance that there would be fluctuations. By the way, there have been times under this deal where the Canadian dollar was over par to the U.S. dollar. And so from our standpoint, it's not so much the level it's at, it's the fluctuation that kind of causes people to have to rejigger the numbers. But in the final analysis, the system works because the system accounts for the fact that there have been and will continue to be fluctuations in the Canadian dollar. Lower Canadian dollar, higher taxes, is that one of the reasons the Canadian teams haven't been able to no. Succeed no. on the uh, ice. Uh, our, our system uh, enables all of our clubs, north and south of the 49th parallel, without regard to market size, to afford to be competitive. Uh, you're also not taking into account that revenues that come in, say, for example, from NBC, are distributed up to Canada, and they get more Canadian dollars to the U.S. dollar when, in fact, we're distributing U.S. dollars. So... In the final analysis, it tends to even itself out, and we, as I said, we have revenue sharing that takes that into account, and the cap is a function of that, and the escrow also takes that into account. And revenue, of course, will soon be generated in Las Vegas with the expansion of a team there for the 2017-2018 season. Uh, the NHL beat the other major sports leagues in putting a team in Las Vegas. I, I didn't know it was a race. <laughs> <laughs> well, nevertheless, did any other commissioners, say Roger Goodell, contact you or reach out to you since then? Not that I recall. Not that you recall? This, all the leagues, I know that people tend to think that we have this clubhouse and the four of us go off on a regular basis and, you know, take secret oaths. That's not the way it works. We're all socially friendly. Uh, we all are professionally friendly, but we all do our own thing. And we made the decision for us as a league that Las Vegas made a lot of sense and would enhance the league. And it's a team that we think that will have tremendous success in the Las Vegas market. The fact that after we pursued this, the NFL seems to be, or at least the Raiders in the NFL seem to be looking at it, that's fine. They can do what they want. From our standpoint, we had been working on this for the better part of a year to two years, and we believe this made sense for us. So Las Vegas is a city that can handle two professional sports. I don't. I'm not. Teams. Since we're since we're going to be there, whether or not it can handle two isn't my issue. Well, uh, if one cannibalizes the other, is the question: Is there enough money 
in Las Vegas to keep a National Hockey League team going the, if the economy turns down, if, uh, the, NFL, if, if the, the NFL comes And if down. an NFL team comes, they have eight home dates. It's, it's not the same as the 41 home dates that we have, plus preseason, plus playoffs. But, but more importantly, uh, this is a team that was granted not for the tourist trade. Obviously, people are going to follow probably their favorite team, the team they root for, their local team, to Las Vegas and say, let's go for a weekend and watch, watch our team play on the road, and that'll be fun. Uh, but Bill Foley, who's going to be, who is the owner of the Las Vegas franchise, uh, did a season ticket drive. He did it with ticket prices and real deposits, and he did it over a year ago. And the notion was see if there's interest from the community. We suggested when he was going to do the ticket drive, do not go to the casinos, do not go to large corporations. Go to individuals and small companies and sell the tickets in groups of no more than eight, and let's see what's there indigenously. I think their season ticket deposit account is somewhere in excess of 15000 which would make them as strong as almost any franchise on a season ticket basis because, and this is what the business leaders in Las Vegas were telling me, there is a strong indigenous population of people in a city that's with the suburbs in excess of 2 million people looking for things like they have in other cities. It's great. It's Caesar's Palace on stage. Everybody dresses like Don Cherry. Michael? <laughs> you have occasionally dressed like I, Don I, Cherry. I sense a little bit of, between that comment and the Leafs, there's a little bit of cynicism <laughs> coming from you this morning. St. Donald and the late, great Al Arbor were wonderful Rochester Americans. Yeah. Michael? Uh, the elephant in the casino when you go to uh, Las Vegas is gambling. Yes. You already partner with DraftKings, so in a way you're profiting from from gambling well you're assuming uh, that daily fantasy sports is the same as gambling but that's well the we new don't york, have enough new york time attorney for that. general we, well that's you uh, know assumes that there are so, lots of opinions on that. but anyway how do you how do you walk the line on gambling how do you tiptoe the line on gambling but, when you're in the gambling capital of the united states well first of all gambling for us is probably uh, an entirely different focus than say football uh, or basketball either at the pro or at the college level uh, we're about 1% of the book. Uh, our game doesn't lend itself to gambling in the same way that football and basketball do. Uh, and from our standpoint, as we focus on gambling, it's about creating the right environment in the, in the arena, um, making sure it continues to be family-friendly, which it is for us. And I'm not... I believe in our players and their professionalism, so it's not about right. the integrity of the game. It's about the environment. Right. Gary, uh, we'll talk about gambling. They had a coach change to the Pittsburgh Penguins early last year, which looks like the smartest decision since time began with Mike Sullivan. I want you to walk through now what you have to deal with, because all your critics say Bettman can fix this in a heartbeat. If you want to change the size of the goalie glove, Ben Bishop is huge. He takes <laughs> up the whole net for Tampa Bay. Who do you have to appease to change the size of the goalie glove to three-quarters of an inch is that Evan Noby-Williams of Bloomberg News suggests? When, when it comes to the issues relating to player performance and player safety, suffice it to say that the union tends to weigh in heavily, and they tend to be protective in ways that we can agree are positive, and they tend to weigh in in areas where we can disagree. Uh, while I think conceptually they agree with us, goalie equipment can be made smaller without jeopardizing Agreed. player safety. The process of doing that and their view of what the goalies need to adjust, right. what the manufacturers uh, need to do, may take more time than we think it should take. But I think the end result is that we're all in agreement that goalies could be smaller equipment-wise. Obviously, Ben Bishop's big even without right. the equipment. <laughs> uh, but but it's a question of process and timing. And we try where we can to do things in cooperation with the Players Association because there tends to be okay. less distractions if we can work those Scarlett, things Scarlett, one quick question. Jump in, Scarlett, with one more quick question. Well, what do you think the, the goalie equipment will look like in five years? What do you think overtime might look like in five years if the goal is to generate – excitement generate some uh, offense well we went to three on three 
sudden death overtime. Love it. So love we're, it. We're, we're yeah, not love having, it. Love we're not it. having we any that. trouble generating excitement. Uh, <laughs> our game has never okay. been more entertaining or competitive. Uh, the goal will be to get the players, goalies, into equipment oh. as small as possible, but protecting okay. them. Okay. Gary Bettman, thank you so much. An annual visit on the state of his. Come back and bring the national Stanley Cup. We've hockey. To yeah, where is this? The, the, the why Stanley don't we Cup. get a walk by of the Penguins? Uh, the what what is That's that? It's, it's actually probably at the engraver about now. Uh, or on its way to Toronto. Okay, the world. Gary Bettman, thank you for having Thank me. you so much. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.